Hi everyone, I'm Greg Lowe from Down Under in Australia. Cosmos Down Under is a production from SQL Down Under. Cosmos DB is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions and views expressed in the podcast are individual and don't necessarily reflect the opinions and views of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing show one with guest Mark Brown. So welcome, Mark. How are you today? And can you tell us who you are and where you fit into Cosmos DB? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me on. My name is Mark Brown. I am a program manager on the Azure Cosmos DB team. Uh, I've been on the team for, oh, three and a half years, I think now. Mm -hmm. um, joined in 2018. Um, I have a number of different things i focus on or do. Um, I am a feature owner, if you will. So PMs sometimes own features or manage yep. features. Uh, and I am a feature owner for our uh, management control plane, right? Mm -hmm. So Cosmos, like any database, has two, two planes on them, if you will. There's a data plane. Mm -hmm. That's the thing you actually do, uh, you know, selects or inserts CRUD operations. And then there's a, con a control plane or a management API, and that's used to manage the service uh, in Azure. So I'm a I'm the PM for that. And then the other thing I do is um, I'm focused on all of our um, kind of outbound, go-to-market, community, social media, forums, anything that's kind of out there talking to developers, users, um, community-focused, anything like that. Um, so Excellent. Yeah. Well, so listen, I suppose if we look at where uh, Cosmos DB came from, I suppose originally they had Document DB and many of the internal APIs and things still say Document DB in different different spots. So it was hard to change those things. The yep. And so what was the thinking in the change to the name? Yeah, so you're right. It's uh, the original internal name of this thing was called Project Florence. Uh, mm -hmm. That was back prior to 2015 when they first released a beta of the service yep. that became document DB. Uh, and at the time we only supported a single API, hmm. uh, that, that, that document API, if you will, uh, that's now called our SQL or even sometimes core API. Um, the product name or the service name changed when, uh, we added, uh, multi-model support, uh, to the service. Um, the first one it's, it's worth was called spelling that out for a second uh, and simply because in most databases, you don't have a multi-model structure. And so for many people listening, that itself would be an odd sort of concept. It is odd. Um, there is surprisingly after us now, um, a lot of databases that do this side of this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Dynamo offers um not dynamo um well i guess it um well i guess it's different they they they're not multi-model but they mm. do what we do in terms of emulating a uh a, a layer uh front end yep right which is essentially what cosmos does right like all the mm. data is stored internally relatively the same it's not exactly the same in fact um but it's relatively the same uh, and it's using all the same kind of backend storage bits in there. But what we do is we emulate uh, a layer that a communication layer, if you will, that understands things like Mongo commands or Cassandra or C like CQL uh, or Gremlin um, or even the table storage API, uh, and then translates that into our kind of core document API or SQL core API. And then you do your CRUD operations uh, like that. Uh, but so the name change came about when we went multi-model because now we're no longer, we're multi-model. So we needed a name uh, that we could use. And at the time there was a service that had been called Cosmos. Uh, and then they had changed that name. And so we still owned the Cosmos name hmm. and we decided, why don't we use that? 
since we already own the name. So we changed it from document DB to Cosmos DB. Excellent. And that's how that, that's how that happened. So, mm. and we liked the, the name was also good because it kind of was expansive, if you will. Right. Like the idea was, yeah. Hey, we could, you know, you could have anything uh, in here. And so we've added, you know, now we've got five support for five different document mm. or database APIs in there. So in terms of the thinking internally, though, like Microsoft's had a lot of database offerings for a lot of time. I suppose one of the questions is why did they decide they needed another one? Or is it to compete directly with the Mongos and uh, that, that sort of structure of database? Sort of structure of database. Right. So we had, I mean, we certainly have a lot of uh, relational uh, database offerings. I mean, of course, mm -hmm. we had... SQL DB, and then you could get that in various flavors. Like there was a managed instance so you had like SQL MI, or you could run SQL on a VM if you wanted or other stuff. And then of course we had the, the open source databases. So there was the MySQL and Postgres. Um, other databases uh, like time series database with uh, Kusto now called Azure Data Explorer. Um, and then of course there's all the analytics stuff as well, right? Um, yeah. But we didn't have anything as a NoSQL offering. And so uh, the idea here is that there is a market need for this type of database. Um, there are some limitations to running, to, to just how big and, and uh, a relational database can get, right? In terms of at least uncharted databases. Really. And NoSQL databases don't face that sort of limitation, right? They're by design, made to be scale out. So um, they don't, it's not a, it's not a scale up thing like you have with a relational database, it's a scale out. Uh, and they do that quite natively and easily um, with partitioning, right? Mm -hmm. So you essentially are defining some property that's within kind of the data you're storing and the record or, or document as you were. And then that value uh, routes the data to some particular server, right? Or partition as we call it. Yeah. Uh, in our in our world, and that allows you to essentially grow infinitely, right? And that's kind of a unique value prop for. I mean, there's a, a a few unique value props. One of them is as a scale out database, you can grow to. I mean, literally infinite size. There is no theoretical limit to what you can grow um, because yeah. it's scale out. The that you can do that and still maintain extremely low latency, um, because the data sits all on different servers. Um, if you route the, to the correct server, getting the data is the same, whether it's whether you've got a megabyte of data in your database or hundreds of petabytes. It just simply doesn't matter. Mm. Um, and the quoted uh, latencies are fairly low, so low milliseconds. Yeah, so we actually have an SLA on that. In fact, we're the only database in Azure that I'm aware of that does have a latency on, or does have an, an SLA on latency. Mm -hmm. um, and that is uh, less than 10 milliseconds uh, at P99 um, for a kilobyte of data or less, yep. um, which is pretty good. And in fact, not only that, but also we have a same latency for, uh, for writes, not just reads. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the same, which is really good, right? And like I said, that's latent, that SLA holds whether you've got a megabyte of data or, or, pet or petabyte. I mean, like I said, it's, it's infinite. It's unlimited, right? And that's an interesting value prop, particularly in the era of cloud computing when the, the data, the amount of data is just growing at an insane amount, right? Like there's just so much data, right? The heart, the challenge isn't getting the data. The challenge is, is capturing it and trying to get insights on the data. And here you have a database that can, that can grow and scale to that uh, amount. Now, I want to caution folks, like just because you can grow to petabytes or hundreds of petabytes in mm. size. Uh, Cosmos is not, I, I wouldn't, uh, I, I wouldn't use Cosmos for necessarily storing that amount of data um, in most use cases, right? Because yeah. look, the data typically has a very, is very time sensitive, right? So you're only going to look at data that's more recent. Uh, so Cosmos is not a database you would use for say archiving data or cold. It's uh, relatively expensive as, uh, compared to say like blob storage or even storage in another database where it's say off cluster, right? In yeah, a, it's, a, it's a strange thing with uh, Azure SQL database that a lot of people don't think about, but 
I, I actually find it surprisingly good for storing <laughs> large amounts of things for longer times, just because even the, the fairly bottom end databases are 250 gig at a time. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, but the thing that's interesting there is I can scale them up fairly fast, drop a whole lot of data in, scale it back down and, uh, yeah. and then bring it up if I ever need to query it. Yeah. That's interesting. Right. And if you need that from an operational database perspective, uh, that's that's pretty cool that you can do that, right? So that you're not paying um, a large amount of money. Oh, indeed. Uh, and and the beauty is it's still in a format where it's queryable. Yep. And so, yeah. Well, what I tell people today. Where it's queryable. Yep. And so, yeah. Well, what I tell people today is hmm. we, I mean, here's the, here's the suggestion I have for people today that um, need to keep large amounts of data around a long time and want to use Cosmos as, say, their operational database. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is to configure Synapse Link yep. um, for your data. And then TTL the data off of Cosmos for what you don't need for your immediate operational, your hot mm-hmm. store needs. Um, and if you need to store data for a month, a year, or whatever, um, keep it in Synapse um, in the column store and then just use Spark or SQL Serverless. Mm. And mm. yeah, and then look at provision that when you need it. I mean, it's pay as you go or pay for your use, right? You just mm. provision the compute, run the query, shut it down. Uh, and then it's easily queryable, right? Um, much better than like say putting it into blob storage. Like before we had the Synapse mm. link thing, if you wanted to put it either into blob store or maybe into like what you were saying, like into a relational store mm. uh, and then just scale it down. Um, that's too many moving parts, um, mm. frankly. It's, I think, simpler uh, to use something like Synapse Link. And then, you know, it's, you can, you know, SQL Serverless is basically SQL. So just write your SQL queries. Mm. Uh, right. Listen, one thing I want to ask you about the different data models, though, is I imagine the first thing that people imagine is that you'd be able to, I don't know, use one model to write the data and then later use a different model to read it. But Today, that's not quite like that. Yeah. Um, <clears> that's funny you bring that up. I actually was having a discussion with someone on, um, what was it, Twitter, I think, the other week. And he he had that same assumption uh, mm. initially. He's like, hey, why can't I uh, write it as Mongo? Why can't I uh, write it as Mongo and query it as you know, your document API or whatever. Um, and the reason is because the data is stored slightly different uh, in the backend. Um, very early on, one of the design objectives was to allow, allow customers to do that. In fact, <clears throat> you can actually uh, achieve that with say our Gremlin API. Yeah, uh, because it's just storing the data as regular JSON, right? Like Cosmos is a JSON store, right? Let's start with that. Yeah. And our the data storage for Gremlin, our graph engine uh, and graph API is JSON. Um, so if you look, if you provision a Gremlin API account and you go and look at it in the portal, on the overview tab in the Azure portal, you will see two endpoints. You will see a SQL endpoint uh, and then you'll see a Gremlin endpoint. I up Visual Studio or VS Code, download our, our SDK, uh, and connect to that Gremlin API database using a SQL SDK uh, and start querying that data. The tricky part is that it's, it's very unusable in some respects because it's written as edges and vertices, right? It's meant yeah. it's stored to be used as, as a craft. Yeah, to, to be used in that format, yeah. Right, yeah. so it makes really more sense using it to query it with a Gremlin yeah. query, uh, right? And then um, and then use it that yeah. way. So I think possible. that's the thing is that people, I, I often talk to and they sort of assume it's like, it's a common store, but then has different ways of integrating. You could sort of yeah. query with any of the all, but it's more like, when you provision an account, it says which personality basically do you want it to have? Yeah. If we so while we started with that as a uh, realize that it's not um, uh, it, it it causes some issues, uh, particularly mm. with Mongo. We there were issues with say corruption, 
because of the 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 kind of the beast on format with yeah mongo uh was challenging to deal with the other one the other problem was bloat uh as well and that for older customers that were using mongo uh in our older server version apis that we had support for um the, the amount of storage for mongo was um th there was a lot of bloat and overhead mm -hmm. so now we've changed that so now with the newer uh newer mongo api version like 4.0 uh i think maybe even 3.6 but certainly by the the 4.0 version um much much better uh, and the reason is because we're using a a binary format under the scene behind the scenes mm -hmm. so it's quite compact and quite fast uh which is good right i mean the the decision to compact and quite fast uh which is good right i mean the the decision to make these completely incompatible uh was the right one because uh frankly it's more valuable to customers that you can run Mongo uh, applications and do so efficiently. Yeah. Uh, right. And that's, that's, that was the benefit customers got is now their, now their Mongo queries and, and all their operations got much less expensive and faster. Hmm. Um, so anyway, so now that's, that's why the, we, these things are not compatible behind the scenes at all, really. Yeah. with the exception of Gremlin, because it's just JSON. Hmm. Um, but then again, there's a usability thing to do they there. publish any details of like which of the apis like what the balance is of customer usage uh we don't publish that mm. um that's probably <laughs> something yeah. i would get into trouble for <laughs> yeah I... no that's okay i did, did just wonder but the um because it always talks about the sql api as the core api uh yet i was imagining that an awful lot of particularly the uh, many of the earlier adopters would have been people from Mongo. That's yeah. I would say that, uh, and I could probably say without getting into too much trouble, mm. that you know our SQL API, our core API, is very popular. Yeah, uh, and Mongo is also very popular. I mean, Mongo, mm -hmm. in its own right, is a very popular database. Um, there are literally millions and millions of users out there yeah. using Mongo. They've been around since over a decade now, since at least 2010, as far as I know. Mm. Uh, now, built up quite a huge community. Uh, and, indeed. Um, yeah. And so the SQL API, I suppose it's SQL, but not quite SQL like you know it <laughs> sort of thing. Um, but but it's, but it's basically it has a SQL feel about it. Uh, but I, I, I suppose the, the first thing is that, you know, there aren't things like uh, uh, the table names and things. A lot, a lot of those things are quite different in, in the way the, the queries work there. Uh, yeah, there are some things that are going to make a guy who are, who is fluent in transactor ANSI SQL kind of scratch their heads. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and you know, um, probably the, the other is, yeah, I was going to say the other thing that is, uh, I suppose a bit limited in those areas are things like aggregations and, uh, grouping and, and those sort of things. Although there are ways with stored procs and things to, to get around a lot of that. Yeah, so I mean, what I'll say about our query engine and our SQL mm. dialect in particular is that it is designed to work with JSON data. Yeah, right. It is designed to work with hierarchical data that is stored in documents. Mm. It is not. There is no notion of table, uh, but those are not the same thing. No, um, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> they're not at all. We do not do joins across containers and. The, mm. if, if when people ask why the re, the reason is actually quite simple uh cosmos is designed to be a high performance database it's designed for extreme low latency and high availability mm. and putting locks and latches on data stored on different servers is not a very uh smart thing to do from a design objective for mm -hmm. a database that's intended for that type of use yeah um so that being said, and that and knowing that the data itself is JSON, um, you will find uh, syntactical support for things like arrays yes. uh, within there. And we do support joins, but these are joins for items within a document that are that are stays stored within an array, mm -hmm. uh, where you can an array mm -hmm. uh, where you can uh, join 
uh, a property from within an array to a property in a higher in a in, a, in its parent, and yeah. then project that out, uh, you know, as a you know, project it flat if you want or whatever it is you want. Um, so you've got support for things like doing subqueries or correlated subqueries, uh, but within arrays inside documents. Mm. Uh, the and I suppose that's the thing too, is that when we issue a SQL command, what we get back is JSON, you know, in that case. So the, yeah, the, uh, the structure is very much around JSON. I think yep. uh, one of the, I suppose, challenges that brings a little bit is that uh, the lack of, say, for example, a date, time, data type, um, that sort of thing. Um, the, there's always uh, discussions in amongst the, uh, uh, people storing JSON, if it's pure JSON, then, then it doesn't have sort of like, um, and I That's noticed that things JSON like Mongo does that a bit differently. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm. I mean, JSON does not have a data type for date time. Yeah. Right. It's got text, string, uh, and numeric, uh, and Boolean. Hmm. I mean, it's very, it's very, <laughs> it's raw. Right. But that's kind of why JSON is so popular is because, uh, it's you know it's portable in that sense. So mm-hmm. date date times in Cosmos, I will say, I mean, our native support for that is uh, eighty six oh one. Yeah. Um, right. So as long as you're reading and writing data out of that format, you're okay with Cosmos, and you're okay mm-hmm. with the date time functions that we support. So we do have date time system functions within Cosmos, mm-hmm. so you can yep. do things in there, um, do the kind of date functions you need. Yeah, in there, but you you need to read and write it um, using in the that right format. format. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> indeed. The, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> indeed. The the other thing that I thought was uh, really pleasing to see in there is uh, built in spatial support as well. Yeah, it's uh, it's very popular, um, and yeah, I mean, a lot of customers use that. Um, it's built. I believe using the same spatial support that we have in SQL. Hmm. Um, in fact, a lot of the people, well, not a lot of them, but a fair number of people that work on our team uh, are from uh, our SQL team. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, um, actually, yeah, it's it's an interesting one in SQL. The uh, if if I look at SQL Server two thousand and eight, I I thought the best thing in the box was the table uh, compression by by far, right? Mm-hmm. But I thought the second best thing in the box was the spatial. And uh, uh, and yet it seems to be still one of the least understood. Or- uh, mm. I worked on the Virtual Earth, which is now Bing Maps team. Yeah. Uh, when that came out, I worked with a guy named Michael Reese. Mm-hmm. Uh, who Michael Well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he was the PM for the SQL support, the spatial support on SQL. Yeah. Uh, and I was overjoyed when that came out because... I obviously working on a mapping product yeah. uh, could take full advantage of that. So uh, yeah, when, they, when we released support for that, I went crazy and wrote a whole bunch of uh, demos and sample apps and other stuff mm. uh, showing off all the cool, all the cool stuff you could do with SQL spatial uh, support. And then of mm. course, visualize that in something like a Bing map. Um yeah, fun days. He gave me some memories there. It Thank is. You. So, and look, in uh, SQL Server 2012, it was substantially enhanced. I, I really loved what they did with it uh, in that version. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually have an online course, a uh, training course uh, on spatial. And, yeah, we still get, like, a uh, number on spatial. And, yeah, we still get, like, a uh, number of people doing that each year. It's uh, So it's still bubbling along in, in the background. Uh, um, but it, it does surprise me... Um, uh, in that part of the market, how how many have not adopted it? Because the, the the thing I look at with the spatial data of any type is it kind of brings your data to life, you know, yeah. uh, and 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 that's a that's a really important thing, you know, when you're doing any sort of analytics or things. Uh, it's so much better to present um, spatial or gra- um, well, I suppose anything that uh, really shows what's going on with the data rather than just the data. It's compelling to see, to visualize data in that sense, mm. isn't it? Uh, yeah. You definitely see data in different in a different light uh, when you can uh, represent it in a spatial format. Mm. I agree with that. I was, uh, it was definitely, I wasn't on the Bing Maps team very long. I've only spent about a year on that team. Uh, but my timing was, I wasn't on the Bing Maps team very long. I've only spent about a year on that team. 
but my timing was perfect in terms of having that SQL, that spatial support come out in SQL. And I certainly loved uh, my time uh, working on that. That was a lot of fun. Look, another thing that's interesting from uh, someone doing development point of view is the automatic indexing of the data. Mm-hmm. And so I, uh, yeah, that's, a, that's normally a significant challenge in, in many you know, databases. And it's uh, also another thing that's, that um, it's a surprise to folks coming from a SQL backend where they've, mm. they ha- there's nothing indexed, right? It's an in- uh, they have to go and explicitly create indexes on data. Mm. Uh, and in Cosmos, we do precisely the opposite. Uh, there's a good reason for this. Um, one of them is we are schema agnostic, if you will. Yeah. Um, right. So we don't enforce schema at the database layer. This is something you would enforce at, say, an application layer. Hmm. Really, anything inside a container, so long as it shares the partition key property name hmm. uh, with the other data. Um, by indexing everything, um, it relieves, it should say, the burden of having to figure out what do I need to index and to change it if I store new data or different data uh, mm. into that container because we just we will automatically index it. Now, um, we do recommend that customers um, customize their, their indexing yes. policy down there, right? And the reason is... Um, the more complex or different the data is, also the deeper it is as well is another mm. aspect of it. Um, the more expensive it gets to write it yep. because you have to index it uh, as well. So we recommend, you always start with just index everything because you don't yep. know what you don't know uh, when you're getting started on a new project and a new app or whatever and you're using Cosmos. Uh, but once you get into say production, uh, one of the optimizations we recommend customers make is to go and look at your queries uh, that you're running against that container, and then uh, customize the index policy to make sure that um, you're indexing what you need uh, to support those filter predicates mm. uh, and sorts um, in your queries. Um, and then just exclude all the other stuff uh, yeah. that you have in there. And so um, another thing that I, I particularly uh, found different to other databases I'd work with is the concept of having a time to live at the container level as well. I mean, that's for a database like Cosmos, it's, uh, it's quite a popular feature um, mm. for a couple of reasons. One, uh, it's as an operator to be used as a, like I said earlier, like it's a cold store. Mm. Um, storage, while I think is, is, is reasonable in terms of its price, I mean, it's 25 cents a gig mm. uh, is, uh, quite a bit more expensive than it would be, say, on Blob Store or, or any other kind of database, yeah. uh, if you will. So, <clears throat> so having a way to be able to TTL off older data, plus as an operational data store, remember its purpose is to is is to be an operational database, right? It's mm. not meant for analytics. It's not meant for cold store or any of this other stuff. So, because ninety percent of the operations you run on data particularly operational data is data that's happened within like the last week or month, typically, then why keep that data on there? So this was an easy way for customers to not have to think about it, like just define what TTL period in seconds that you want. And then we will behind the scenes, um, um, dis- um, um, disappear that data for you. Yeah, so it just automatically deletes after. Hi, this is Greg coming to you from another time and place. If you have a data-related project that needs to get off to a great start with the right architecture, or if you have an existing project that's off the rails, why not contact us? We help organizations of all sizes, from startups to tier one financials, and we can help you too. Check us out at sqldownunder.com. The the other thing uh, I thought was interesting is the concept of having a built-in change feed. Yeah, uh, change data capture is, uh, I, I mean, I think a lot of databases now support it. I mean, I even even mm. SQL Server now got changed as its own change feed. Yeah, actually, uh, 2008 uh, was the first uh, <laughs> implementation of that one too. Was it 2008? 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, I thought it came out much later than that. Um, that's a, I mean, a, and um, that's a very popular feature, I'll say. Mm. Um, again, yeah, as an operational data server, change feed makes it really easy to build kind of event-driven applications. And that's primarily what people are using it for. Yeah. Is, hey, I want to stream data into Cosmos from, I don't know, a bunch of IoT devices or a bunch of retail cash registers or mm. I, what anything, mm. I, what anything, um, anything at all. Um, and I want to be able to react to that new data coming in and do take action on it, do something with it. So mm. change, change feed is uh, absolutely perfect for that. You can also use it. There's a lot of use cases for it. Another one is, um, is just for data movement. Yeah, uh, and streaming. Just uh, like if you um, if you write new data into Cosmos, here's a uh, here's a scenario for you. Um, in scenarios where you have very high write volumes uh, and simultaneously very high read volumes, it is quite typical that the partition key for both is not the same. Um, mm -hmm. In high rights volume scenarios, you typically are going to use a partition key that's going to help distribute those rights across a large, a wide array of partitions. Uh, and the reason is because if you don't do that, you end up with what we call a hot partition, where one server is getting hammered over and over and over again, and the other servers are not doing anything. Um, you want to distribute those rights so that all the servers are busy writing data uh, and you're keeping them fully active, fully working. On the read path, though, um, in high concurrency scenarios, you typically want queries that only are going to hit ideally one partition, but in some cases, maybe a, a small number, like a mm. handful. And those are always going to be different. Like in an IoT scenario, you would typically probably use something like a device ID as your, um, as your partition key. But on a read path, you're probably going to use something like date or something else, maybe it's a multi-tenant SaaS application that's reading device temperature data from buildings. Uh, you're probably gonna have something like a tenant ID or a customer ID uh, and dates as well, or maybe not, I mean, you'll have, you'll have dates, not, I mean, you'll have, you'll have dates at some level, but, uh, but yeah. at least they'll have something else besides like a device ID. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, and so what, what you do is you use change feed, it reacts to the data being written into one container that's partitioned by say device ID, and then it copies that data into another container that's partitioned by say customer yeah. ID. And now you've got a container that's ready-made to go to serve those queries uh, rather than having to write queries that's gonna hammer that other container. Yeah, the um, one that you're and, optimizing for the rights. Yeah. Correct, and, and now you're running high concurrency cross-partition or fan-out queries, just a mm -hmm. bad, that's not, a, that's not optimal in any situation. Yeah. I, I think um, one of the things that actually makes the change feed more interesting here too, of course, is the schemaless nature uh, of of the way the product works. And and simply, if I look at change data capture in SQL Server, one of the biggest challenges there is where, as the schema of the tables change, it's the the impact that then has on the feeds. And so it, it, there's a, a subtle beauty in not having it uh, tied to that for things like change feeds. Uh, yeah, that, that actually helps a lot. Um, the last few things I want to mention today, though, just as a general overview, uh, in the SQL API and things, I mean, we do have stored procedures, triggers, and user-defined functions, but again, somewhat different to what people might be used to. Yeah, they, uh, this is another area where I see confusion um, from folks. Um, our stored procedures are not like SQL store procedures. No. Um, first of all, they're written in JavaScript. Mm -hmm. um, and they run in a very limited sandbox. Like you can't, uh, there's, you, you can't import like other JavaScript libraries into this thing. You base directly against our server, essentially. Mm. Um, store procedures in SQL in our, in Cosmos um, are primarily good at doing bulk writes. Like if you've got a lot of documents and you want to write them and do so uh, with high efficiency, stored procedures are, are good to use. 
Mm. I do not recommend, in fact, I strongly advise against people using stored procedures to do reads. Mm -hmm. And the reason is stored procedures only operate on the, the primary replica within uh, a replica set. So, and let me explain the concept mm. here. So when you write data into Cosmos, you, we, we, we make four copies of it um, and write and on a write, we write to what we call a local majority, which means we write to three of those four replicas uh, before we act it as committed. Three of those four replicas uh, before we act it as committed. Uh, and the idea here is this provides greater availability, right? So your data is essentially managed in a quorum of replicas in this rep in a four replica replica set. So when you write data, we write it to three replicas and then the fourth one will get eventually written to. Um, and that usually happens very, very quickly. When you read data, uh, depending on which consistency model you're using, uh, and we can maybe talk about that later, mm. um, but when you read data, we read it from a single replica. And the nice thing there is that any of those replicas can be used to serve a read, um, which is good because each of them consume throughput or when you, when you provision throughput on a, on a container, it's distributed evenly among all those replicas in there. And, and like, I, but like I said, it's good for performance <clears throat> because any of those replicas can be used uh, to serve that read. When you use stored procedures, they replica. So if you were doing high concurrency queries, uh, you were only you were only going to access one fourth of the throughput that's provisioned for that. It would otherwise be available. Yeah. Yeah. So I strongly recommend that customers don't use them for high concurrency mm. uh, reads. Um, they can use them for high volume writes. Uh, and also for doing transactions. By the way, we support transactions. I don't know. Yeah, so it is ACID style transaction, but we do support ACID semantics on data. But the 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 scope of the transaction is to a single logical partition. Single partition. Yeah. Okay. So you the value for that part, whatever you property you set as a partition key has to be the same. Hmm. Um, and so you can insert, I don't know, as many as you want documents in a stored procedure, um, I mean, whatever it can handle, uh, and then write and then have it have, wrap it in a transaction or have it in the, have it in the tr context of a transaction. And it's all, and it's all or nothing for that. Um, but even that, even using stored procedures to do the high volume writes or multiple writes in a transaction is something you can just as easily accomplish using our transactional batch in our mm. SDK. Yeah. Uh, the limit there is you're only you're limited to 100, 100 operations within that transaction. Within a stored procedure, you could potentially do many more. Uh, but there is uh, uh, stored procedures are bounded uh, in terms of execution time of five seconds. Mm -hmm. So if the whole thing can't run in five seconds, it will not it will not yeah. work. You'll throw an exception. Uh, I think so, triggers are interesting as well in that they're not. Fired automatically, I suppose, is the probably you the have most to surprising. That's thing. right. You have to explicitly fire a trigger. Uh, mm. So they are not. That's, that's another another big confusion uh, for folks. Uh, confusion uh, for folks uh, in there, um, and their, you know, their usefulness depends. I guess. I mean, you can use a pre-trigger to modify data before it's committed. Mm. Um, but you I, don't see I, anything. I wish we had those in SQL Server, I might add. Oh, really? <laughs> well, we have instead of triggers and we have after triggers, but we yeah. uh, we don't actually have a before trigger. And uh, ironically, the place that I most want to use that is in uh, DDL statements, but uh, that's another long story. <laughs> and so Sounds like a whole other podcast. Uh, yeah, episode. yeah, it does yeah. indeed. But uh, yeah, I think that's probably when I first looked at Cosmos DB, that was... Uh, one of the things that did surprise me is the idea that a trigger, yeah, you could use it to like alter the operation or you could cancel an operation, but, but the fact that, yeah, that you had to sort of request them to run. Yeah. I, um, I mean, I think in, in the, in the early days of our, of our production of doing these stored procedures and triggers and even UDFs in JavaScript, um, made sense. I mean, it's a JSON database mm. and, um, that was kind of the, uh, our server service layer, if you will, yeah. uh, underneath. Um, I'm less of a fan of them these days. Um, mm. I think you can achieve, I think you could get 
but you could achieve pretty much everything you need to just using the, the regular SDKs. Like we yeah. have um, transactional batch support. So if you want to insert a bunch of stuff and do it in the context of a transaction, you can do that very easily. Uh, you know, insert, update, and delete documents all and do up to a hundred of them all within a transaction. Mm-hmm. If you want to do bulk loading of data, uh, use our document, uh, use our SDK and just use the bulk mode um, in there. That's going to give you very efficient saturation of throughput um, and will essentially take, you can just, you know, we have lots of samples that essentially you're just going to create a list of threads and then just start creating new threads with inserts on there and then do a win all on it and it'll dispatch the whole thing and, and then mm. uh, just let the SDK do all the work. Um, that's much more, I don't know, developer friendly, right? I mean, maybe that's another kind of key difference as well between um, SQL and, and Cosmos is, well, I think SQL is, is developer friendly. Uh, what I would say is SQL is also very DBA friendly, if you will, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there's always been a space for DBAs in the SQL world. Mm. That's not really a case with Cosmos. We've not really... I mean, we're a, a native Azure service. It's fully managed. There's very little to do, really, from a DBA perspective with a database mm-hmm. like Cosmos. And so our, our, yeah, the, I the see. primary audience for that has always been uh, kind of an app developer um, writing code. Yeah, although the thing I look at... Um, writing code. Yeah, although the thing I look at there is I, I still find uh, whenever you have that, you need someone with the skills to do the design of how things are going to be stored and, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, where, again, if you just have, you know, I've been in places with, say, four or 500 devs and uh, things can end up very uh, different, (laughs) you know, in in how things have been done and across an organization that that can be painful. Um, I agree with the, what you're saying in that, in the larger context of how data is managed within an org, yeah. um, you need, you need that governance and, yeah. but it's a and, different oversight. role. It's a, it's a different role. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. They're not, you don't have a guy that's tuning your indexes and doing, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I mean, you do some of that, of course, with Cosmos. Yeah. You'll still um, have a, I think there's still a role there for a performer. Uh, Greg, you're absolutely right. In fact, uh, that's a fantastic point that mm. I hope your users understand is with a database like Cosmos, you must measure your performance. Mm. There is always going to be work to do after you or as you get into production to optimize your design. It is never, you do not uh, ever achieve kind of an optimal design right out of the gate with mm. the database like Cosmos. You are always going to learn new things about your application, your workload, and how people are using it, or maybe not using it, that are going to require you going and revisiting the the model that you use. So the models for your data uh, and the operations and the containers and the partition key, all of that stuff. You you it mm. has to be iterative. And if you approach it from that perspective, it's you're uh, you're going to be a happier yeah, camper in the long run. I think originally too with the product, it used to be single write, wasn't it? Region, um, but uh, yeah, been, um, but uh, yeah, we were single last, region. Uh, the last four years or so, it's been uh, multi-master as well. That's uh, that's right. So when we first launched this document DB, we were um, we did not do replication, single mm-hmm. region account. We then added multiple region accounts. Um, I want to say that was like 2016. Uh, that was quite a while ago. We then uh, announced multi-region rights or multi-master mm-hmm. in 2018. In fact, I was the guy, I, that was <laughs> the first thing I launched on Cosmos was that feature awesome. <laughs> uh, when I joined in 2018. Yes, it was at Ignite 2018. I joined almost 30 days before. Mm. And they said, hey, welcome to the team, Mark. Glad to have you on board. Uh, we're going to launch this feature called Multimaster at Ignite, and you got 30 days to do it. And I <laughs> said, okay, what's been done? And they said, well, nothing. <laughs> well, I mean, the feature out uh, in the service, but there's no decks are done, no demos are done, no, mm-hmm. no samples are done, no docs are done. Nothing's done. It's all, <laughs> it's all you. So I had 30 days to boot camp myself on getting, you know, very versed in the service and then understand my feature. Uh, 
in all of its complexity, uh, because it is a bit of a complex uh, feature in that you have to deal with things like conflict resolution. Yeah. Um, when you allow people so, to yeah, write into conflict any region. policies or functions. Right. Or, yeah. I mean, yeah, behind the scenes, if you allow people to write into different regions and they're writing the same data to the same document, uh, you have to you have to provide a way to allow them to merge that data and mm. resolve conflicts. So, uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Um, and look, even even just the global distribution, of course, introduces uh, the issues around consistency levels as well. And uh, uh, that's that's another I've, I think great aspect of the uh, the product is you're not tied product is you're not tied to sort of like a single consistency level. You do have a range of consistency levels you can work with. I mean, there's, it's another unique aspect of the product that's unlike any other <clears throat> database in Azure is that mm. it provides, as a NoSQL database, it also provides that native replication. So you could replicate yeah. into any number of regions globally within Azure, um, <clears throat> which is nice because it provides higher availability. And that's another unique SLA that mm. I don't believe any other database has which is the five nines of availability uh yeah. because we can survive regional outages uh mm. in that way but because it's now a distributed database you now have to deal with well maintaining the consistency of my data uh when i'm copying it and replicating it into multiple regions because if i write data in one region and then immediately try to read it in out of another uh i'm not going to see the data or i may see dirty data uh i'm not going to see the data or i may see dirty data Hmm. Uh, within there. So that's why we have these consistency models um, that help govern how quickly that data is replicated. Yeah. Um, and so people can use strong consistency, uh, which is the strictest, and that's hmm. synchronous replication, which is good. There's no, you have no dirty reads. Um, the downside is that uh, your writes get uh, or can get very, very uh, long. Yeah, um, because the the data must commit to all the regions you're in before it'll act back to uh, you as a user uh, in there. Um, and then, but we've but we have others in there. And there's a bounded staleness, which kind of has a defined staleness window uh, mm -hmm. and a, either defined as time or a number of updates. Um, session that says you will see consistency. Yeah. And then there's uh, session. That session is very interesting, but I mean, most consistency models are defined by the data itself, right? Like how yeah. does the data get replicated and committed? Session is different. Session is a client-based consistency mm. model. Um, and so if I read my own rights, I'm going that's, to see what And I that's expect. what's interesting about it is that the the guarantees it provides are it's you know the monotonic reads, monotonic writes, writes, reads, follow writes, uh, mm. and read your own, or read your own write in there. And how we do that is we use this session token, which is basically the LSN for the data, right? So yeah. over a log sequence number. So as you write data into a into a database, there's this, these LSNs uh, that are used to track the data as it's written in, and then we pass that back to the SDK client. And then what you can do as a user or as a developer is further take and pass that back to your end user. And now when they go and they want to read that data again, they pass it, send that back into your read to make sure that you're reading your own data in there mm -hmm. because it'll pass the LSN. So if the LSN uh, is not as high uh, or is lower than the value in there, um, our SDK will retry that in yeah, another, in another region it until it finds yeah. your data um, mm -hmm. in there. So. No, it's great. Look, the ability to do that. There's, look, there's so many things that we're going to um, planning to put shows together uh, that we'll sort of cover over a period of time uh, with That's, uh, these different aspects. So, definitely, Cosmos is a uh, product or a service uh, that is a good thing to do a podcast around. I do my mm -hmm. own podcast on it. Yep, uh, as well. And uh, but if you're I like the idea of doing a podcast to kind of explore the service and all the other, all the features and mm. ins and outs of it, because um, there's, there's a lot to learn. There's a lot there. Yeah. Uh, so I'm really well, actually, I'm excited. One, one final thing I mentioned though, Matt. There's a lot there. Yeah. Uh, so I'm really well, actually, I'm excited. One, one final thing I mentioned though, Mark, is uh, what, what's the current internal adoption like of Cosmos DB, I suppose uh, uh, in in whatever you're allowed to say or not say. But, oh my uh, God! 
uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of services in Azure take a dependency on Cosmos and use Cosmos mm-hmm. um, because Cosmos solves a lot of problems for them, yeah. right? I mean, w- like, first of all, we're uh, what's called a ring zero service, uh, mm. which means that you cannot, and I don't know if this is a chicken and egg thing, but you, we're you a ring zero service. You deploy Azure in a region without it. <laughs> without it, that's right. You cannot light a region up without having Cosmos in there. Um, yeah. But I think it actually in a chicken and egg sense, made it easier for other, a lot of service teams to adopt us because mm. we solved some very real problems. Like how do you run, how do you replicate or have data uh, in a predictable, consistent way uh, across lots of different and keep your service up and keep the lights on when a region goes down mm. or a network fails? Um, how do you reduce latency for customers that want to or need to read data or write data? Again, that's the replication, the native replication and the ability to do multi-master writes provides that low latency uh, for that data and a way to merge it and manage conflicts uh, around it. Um, There is just no shortage of services within Azure and it grows all the time. Uh, And Mm. you'd be be surprised. I I, I can't really, I don't want to really share. No, no, no. Uh, I didn't um, think you'd be able to give a specific list, but I, I have seen various lists and there were a surprising number of services. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I'll uh I'm working on trying to do um some shows that bring some people on to talk mm. about it internally, uh first party folks. Um yeah. I'll be sure to share that with you. With who's, who's using it. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So listen, Mark, that pretty much brings us to time. Thank you so much for being involved today. And uh well, I'm sure we will talk to you again soon. Uh, happy to be here. Thank you for having me on, especially for your inaugural episode. Uh, I'm, I feel quite honored uh, that you would invite me on. Uh, and best of luck. This is, I think this is a-